Section 15 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Annie Rue. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. The Origin of Certain Americanisms. Part 1. Some words on language may be well applied, and take them kindly though they touch your pride. Words lead to things. The accepted manner of defining Americans, either male or female, in the London comic papers or in second-rate English novels, is to lard their speech plentifully with calculate and guess, and with well at the opening of each sentence. This mode of marking, or any other, is in itself totally unimportant, but linguistically it is not without interest, for while it is purely conventional as now used, and has no relation to any American habits of the present day, whether good or bad, it is pleasant to note that the hard-working insular humorists need not have gone so far afield to find the words necessary for the identification of Americans. They really had but to turn to the new letters of Thomas Carlyle, and there read the following sentence. He has brought you a fox's book of martyrs, which I calculate will go in the parcel today. You will get right good reading out of it, I guess. This was a private letter in which Carlyle was neither satirizing nor imitating anybody, and used quite naturally words to which he was accustomed. Yet every one of those which are printed in italics is employed by British writers to characterize American speech and to show at the same time how vulgar and degenerate it is. Calculate, as used by Carlyle, was three-quarters of a century ago typically American and especially characteristic of New England. It is now rarely heard anywhere in the United States. Carlyle's use of guess in the American fashion, also meaning to think or suppose, has behind it the best authority, one at least much older than Shakespeare, who was likewise American enough to guess. For Chaucer says, in the prologue, of twenty year of age he was, I guess. Pope uses guess in the American fashion very frequently in his letters. Coleridge was addicted to it. He uses it in Christabel. I guess twas frightful there to see. And also in his letters. I guess I shall be there in seven days. And again, which formed, I guess, part of the impulse which occasioned my last letter. Wordsworth has it also in He was a lovely youth, I guess a line which it seems almost cruel to quote because it reflects so severely upon the memory of a great poet. Indeed, it almost surpasses that other bit of champion prosaic verse. A Mr. Wilkinson, clergyman, so beloved of Tennyson and Fitzgerald. Robert Louis Stevenson writes, Otherwise, much the same, I guess, quite naturally and without italics or quotation marks. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Pope, Gray, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Carlyle, Stevenson. At least we Americans sin in good company when we guess, and we might aptly say to the insular humorist who is unread in these authors that it is better to err with Pope than shine with pie. But of course, seriously speaking, the word guess is a good old English word, and the American usage is both excellent and correct, as well as far truer to the tradition and spirit of the language than the British which substitutes of fancy, imagine, or expect, which last is also American, and quite grotesquely wrong, because it can properly apply only to the future. 
Pope's name in Byron's line is a reminder that the other italicized phrase of right good in Carlyle's letter still demands a word of explanation. In justice to Carlyle, it should be said in passing that he is not the only great writer of that period who used right good. Dickens, who hated Americans and all things American with a sleepless hatred difficult now to comprehend, even as the result of wounded vanity, speaks of a right good income in one of his letters. Right good is common in colloquial speech in certain parts of the United States, and real good in all. Both are, as I have said, colloquial. Neither would be considered good English or be employed by any careful writer or speaker. Yet I am sorry to say, for I dislike the use of either phrase, that those who indulge in them will find, if they turn to Spence's anecdotes, that Pope, the very apostle of correctness, speaks of Pryor as not a right good man, and a little later is quoted as saying that Garth, Van Brew, and Congreve were the three most honest-hearted, real good men of the poetical members of the Kit Kat Club. I have tried to convince myself that Pope, if correctly quoted by Spence, used real as an adjective, but the punctuation renders this explanation a strained one, at best, impossible. Yet even the high authority of the greatest of Queen Anne's poets, while it shows whence Carlyle, Dickens, and Americans alike derive these phrases, cannot make right good the best English, or real good anything but a vulgarism. Yet it is well for the British critic to remember that when he is defending our common language from these two Americanisms, he is at the same time condemning Pope, Dickens, and Carlyle, who would be surprised, I think, to find that they had been guilty of two typical instances of American shortcomings in the difficult art of speaking English. Let me pause a moment before I go further to say that I have not forgotten Mr. Lang's reply to Mr. Matthews, who had been printing some hideous neologisms and coinages taken from current British publications, of which we in the United States were quite guiltless. Mr. Lang then wrote, A word or phrase does not become a Britishism because one good writer lets it fall from his pen, nor because it appears in the prose of a writer of advertisements. And again, I hope Mr. Matthews will understand that to pick a few neologisms or vulgarisms of no general currency out of such sources as he searches in is not to prove that the peccant terms are in general national use. If Mr. Lang would only have applied these rules in criticizing the English spoken by a majority of those who now use and love that splendid speech, it would have been well. But this does not concern me here. The examples I have thus far quoted, and all that I shall quote, are not called from advertisements. Still less are they given to convict the inhabitants of Great Britain of using neologisms or vulgarisms. The phrases I quote have been picked up casually in that desultory reading which Dr. Johnson so wisely defended, and which was not indulged in with any linguistic purpose. My object is merely to show that those British writers who talk idiotically about the American language and groan over the injury wrought in our common speech by American innovations ought to know English literature, at least superficially, before they cry out, so that they may be enabled to shriek intelligently. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Pope, Gray, Coleridge, Stevenson, and Carlyle cannot be brushed aside as advertisements or as good writers who let fall a word. 
They represent the best English of their times, and the phrases they used, whether good or bad, may be set down as characteristic and accepted English in Great Britain at their respective periods. The employment of phrases or words by writers like these demonstrates the usage of the time. In this way we get the pedigree of many Americanisms, and it is well to remember that because the men who brought Shakespeare's and Milton's English, the only English they could bring, to the New World retained phrases and words which have since become obsolete in England. It does not therefore follow that those words and phrases thus preserved are American inventions, or dangerous and vulgar innovations. As showing the truth of what I have just said, let me take a familiar illustration, which when followed out in detail, demonstrates quite perfectly the danger of branding a word or its use as an Americanism, simply because it is not current in Great Britain today. Rare, as applied to meat, instead of the English underdone has always been held up as a rank and very absurd Americanism. Let us see. In Christ's Hospital, twenty years ago, Lamb, I wish that we could claim him as an American, says, Portions of the same flesh, rotten, roasted, or rare. Here is the American usage. Let us take another step backward in the abysm of time. Dryden writes, in his translation from Ovid, of the story of Bossus and Philomen, Dryden writes, And new-laid eggs, which Bossus's busy care, turned by gentle fire, and roasted, rare. Now we can guess whence rare came to America. It was good seventeenth-century English, and the Englishmen who came to America brought it with them, and their descendants kept it. But whence came the word with that significance into English? It has a pedigree outdating those of purest Norman descent. Turn to an Anglo-Saxon dictionary, and you will find the word hirar, rear, or raw. So we discovered that our Americanism of rare meat is purely Anglo-Saxon, and this fact suggests that before accusing us of a misuse of the word rare, English critics should learn that it is not an offspring of the Latin rarus, but a sound almost unchanged Saxon word of an entirely different meaning. Although it has not been so much insisted upon lately, not many years ago, from the time of Dickens and the American notes onward, it used to be solemnly pointed out that Americans could be immediately identified by their shocking habit of using well constantly at the beginning of a sentence, either reflectively or as an exclamation. Some years since, in a brief essay, I pointed out that Shakespeare constantly used well in this fashion, at the beginning of sentences. Since then I have noted some other authors of repute who were guilty of this habit, thereby identifying themselves as Americans, with imperfect knowledge of their native tongue. It occurs constantly, for example, in Sir Thomas Mallory's version of the Mort d'Arthur, and we find it at the beginning of one of Marlowe's mighty lines, when Cosro says, well, since I see the state of Persia droop. Another phrase for which we Americans were wont to be censored was good time, in the sense that one enjoyed oneself. The clumsy circumlocution necessary to explain the words thus combined shows at once the soundness and excellence of the phrase. Yet in the latter nineteenth century, 
the British undertook to restrict the use of good time to a woman's confinement, just as in the same period they insisted that sick, despite Shakespeare and the Bible and the prayer book, must be limited to describing nausea and no other ill that flesh is heir to. We need only go to Dryden to demonstrate that the American use of good time has the best authority. In Absalom and Atitophil occur these lines. During his office, treason was no crime. The sons of Belial had a glorious time. So glorious, or good time, was in good 17th century English, approved by Dryden, and the English-speaking people in America used it, and being isolated in those days, let it take root and kept it. They were wise in doing so, wiser than their English brethren, for it is a terse sound phrase, good English, and not easily replaced. It must in justice be said that the British are now coming round to the usage of Dryden and of the United States. Stevenson says in one of the Valima letters, I have the loveliest time. Henry Greville uses pleasant time in the American sense in 1854. Sir Leslie Stephen, than whom there was no more careful writer, uses good time in the American sense in his introduction to the letters of J. R. Green, and I have also found it employed in similar fashion by Canon Anger, who is certainly most fastidious in all things literary. So we may feel sure, I think, that this sound 17th-century Americanism has been vindicated and is returning to the complete possession of that wide application of which insular usage at one time tried to deprive it. In the same way, mad was used with the American sense of angry in the 17th century. We find it in Pepys. It is also found in Defoe. My lord, I said, you are in a passion. It makes me mad, he said. Again in Robinson Crusoe, Friday, who is learning English from his master, says, Why you angry, mad? In both these instances, it is used explicitly in the sense of angry, but with Defoe, as with Pepys, it seems to be wholly colloquial. Yet it remained in use, never sinking, apparently, to the condition of vulgarism or of mere slang. The 17th and 18th century usage lost in England has been retained in the United States, and the employment of the word in the sense of angry has continued unchanged. No good writer or speaker would use it in either book or speech, but in the common talk of daily life, mad for angry is still thought permissible, and if neither elegant nor of literary propriety, it is equally removed from being considered mere vulgarism. The word ride presents a very similar case. I was brought up to use ride only with reference to riding on horseback, but American usage has extended its application to being carried in any form of conveyance, whether in carriages or horse-drawn vehicles, which was formerly described as driving, or in streetcars, railroad trains, motor cars, or even in boats. I had supposed this misapplication of ride, as it appeared to me, was a modern growth, but I found with some surprise that Pope, in his letters, applied it to being carried in vehicles generally. Here again the American use dates back to the English usage of the 18th century. Another word not infrequently employed, like calculate, to mark an American in English books and comic, clever, descriptive of the intelligence, but with a shade of meaning which none of these equivalents exactly conveys. 
The word in this form is widely diffused in the United States, although it has been, perhaps, peculiarly characteristic of New England, where smartness of that kind was greatly admired. In England, smart has of late been applied only to external objects, to appearance, to dress, to equipages, and the like. Both usages are old and good. One has been largely abandoned in England, both have remained in America. We find smart applied to dress in the Lincolnshire tale, cited by Hollowell in his Dictionary of Archaisms. On the other hand, the word is employed in the American sense by Goldsmith in The Citizen of the World, who there speaks of a youth of smart parts. Again, he speaks of smart verses. We learn from Dickens' immortal description of the Eatonswill election that Fiskin's agent was a smart fellow, very smart fellow indeed. Oilman, in his unfinished life of Coleridge, says, he, Coleridge, was, according to modern phraseology, smart and clever. Gilman's book appeared in 1838, and this statement is curious, for it seems to indicate that the American usage, familiar to Goldsmith, was making a reappearance in England, and was regarded as a novelty. If it did so appear, the word evidently failed to make its way at that time. Another interesting thing in Gilman's sentence is that he includes clever in the quotation marks with smart, as if clever in the sense of quick and intelligent was a novel usage, one not thoroughly established. Clever is now generally, if not exclusively, used in that sense in both Great Britain and the United States. But in the middle of the last century, and for twenty years later, clever was used universally in New England, and quite generally, I think, in the United States, in the sense of good-natured, honest, and kindly, without any suggestion of keen intelligence. I well remember hearing people say sometimes, when using the word in what is now universally accepted manner, I mean the English clever. It seems evident that the old use of smart in both senses continued in England down to the end of the 18th century, and then the application of the word to a man's intelligence disappeared, while in America both applications survived. As to clever, in the old American sense of good-natured, not only Goldsmith, but Gray, in his letters, is a witness that this use of the word was in good and recognized standing in the England of the 18th century. The usage lingered in the popular speech of America long after it had disappeared in England, and now, although still occasionally heard in the United States, has been practically abandoned in both countries. Different from can hardly be called an Americanism, because it can be found in English writers of the highest mark at all periods. Byron, for example, used different from in his letters, and so too does Matthew Arnold in his. But during the last century, a fashion grew up in England of saying and writing different to. I have met with it in many recent authors of repute, and some Americans, the few who like to ape English habits, good or bad, undertook to use it in this country with very slight success. There never was either warrant or reason for different to, and it is clearly ungrammatical, as was strongly shown by a writer in The Spectator not long ago in an article condemning this practice among some of his countrymen. Different from is not only correct, but if anyone desires authority, he can find a great one in Dr. Johnson, who uses it in his letters. Charles Fox also used different from in speaking. The universal American usage, I am glad to think, is again prevailing in England, where it was set aside only in obedience to some strange freak for which no cause can be alleged. 
The best statement of the case can be found in a letter from Lewis Carroll, the author of the Alice books, to Miss Edith Ricks in 1886. He says, now I come to your letter dated December 22nd, and I must scold you for saying that my solution of the problem was quite different to all common ways of doing it. If you think that's good English, well and good. But I must beg to differ to you and to hope you will never write me a sentence similar from this again. In the latter part of the last century also, it was the fashion in England to condemn mutual friend and insist upon common friend. The latter never affected a lodgment in America except among those who wished to be different to their fellow countrymen. Without discussing the merits of the two forms, it may be noted that there is excellent and abundant authority for the American usage. Not only did Dickens use Mutual Friend as a title of one of his novels, but I have found it more than a century earlier in one of Stern's letters to Lydia, and have also come across it in both Oilman's and Cottle's Memoirs of Coleridge and in Lavengro, as well as in Mr. Dice's preface to his edition of Marlowe. Byron in his conversations with Lady Blessington, and Thackeray in party-giving snobs, and twice in the roundabout paper, on a joke I heard from the late Thomas Hood, are both guilty of the Americanism mutual friend. Thomas Campbell in his life of Mrs. Siddons speaks of meeting our mutual friend. End of section 15